I'm Brooke Gurley, and you are listening to Untold Stories, the cases that shaped the civil rights movement, presented by Law and Crime. This podcast is the audio adaptation of my video series titled The Untold Stories of the Civil Rights Movement. And now, on to this week's episode. What's up, everyone? It's me, Brooke. Just a brief message uh, before we get into this week's episode. I wanted to give you all a little update on the Untold series. I'm taking a little break and I will return in 2021 with some more great content to share with you. I just want to thank you all for joining me with the Untold series. I really enjoyed sharing what I believe are important cases um, over these last few months. Thank you for sticking with me, for your feedback that will make this series even better. And while you're waiting on new episodes, please be sure to share any previous episodes with people you think would really enjoy this series or you think need to hear this series. Um, But in the meantime, I want to replay one of my favorite episodes. So enjoy this replay and I will see you in the next year. What's up, everyone? I'm Brooke. Welcome back to my page, my wherever you have found me. Um, I'm so glad you joined me for part seven of the untold series where I look at what I believe are important civil rights cases I discuss them break them down and I tell you why I think they're important so this week's case is very fascinating I know I say that all the time because all these cases are fascinating to me but this week's case is particularly fascinating it's the United States versus ship and this case is a criminal trial the United States Supreme Court has had one criminal trial in its entire history and it was this case where they prosecuted a white sheriff in 1906 in the um, lynching of a black man and so whereas before you know when I discuss cases if you've been following we talk about the facts the issues the reason the holding and the reasoning and all of that good stuff we're not going to really have that kind of sweet outline going on today today is going to be heavy on the facts and then the finality of all of this so let's get into the facts this is probably going to be a little longer than normal with my videos but it is worth it trust me all right let's get into these facts so this case starts with a rather tragic event a white woman named nevada taylor was sexually assaulted by a man on her way home from work she didn't know she didn't see him because all she saw was um, that he was wearing all black and he grabbed her by from behind said if you scream i'll kill you she was apparently knocked unconscious came to ran home got her father took her to the doctor who informed her that she had been sexually assaulted so the police come they do an investigation they see a, a, a leather rope um that's left there at the scene that matches the the rope that was around her neck um she described she says i didn't see the person but you know he seemed to be a little below average height soft voice and was wearing all black and they asked her if, she, if the guy was black or, or not black but white or negro and she said i believe he was negro but she didn't see him at all so the police are looking for this perpetrator and they have reward money out two days pass and a man named hickson comes and says hey i saw a black man with a leather strap waving it back and forth and they were like what a black man with a leather strap he must have done it and he was around that area close to that time period they find a man a black man who was with this black man with the leather strap the one black man says oh yeah that's ed johnson they go find Ed Johnson and he's like, what are you talking about? I didn't do anything. They arrest Ed Johnson for the murder. I mean, yeah, for the rape rather. So Ed Johnson is thrown in jail and that night the mob comes to get him, to kill him. And the sheriff, Sheriff Ship, he has, you know, all the guard, actually he's moved to another city. 
to protect Johnson from the mob because they expected a lynch mob. Um, they have a trial. It's a few days. Hickson comes and says the same story I saw Johnson waving the strap around. The um, victim, she says, you know, I believe it's this guy, but she doesn't know. The judge, by the way, appoints Ed Johnson three attorneys, and they are very competent attorneys. One, in fact, is apparently the best criminal defense attorney in town. And so when it's their time to put on the case, they are knocking out. First of all, they presented 13 witnesses who were alibis saying that no, Ed Johnson was not in that area. He was somewhere else at the time of this um, assault. So that's one. And then they unravel Hickson's alleged testimony of seeing Ed with the whip and showing how basically he fabricated that for the money. Um, they did a great job, but it's 1906 Tennessee. And so as you can imagine, this case didn't go very well for Ed Johnson. In fact, though, it was still curious because they brought the victim back up to testify and the jury stands up at some point and is like, yo, we gonna ask our own questions. I know how y'all got, we just have some questions straight up. First of all, are you sure that this is the one? One juror yells out, are you sure that he did it? And she's like, I think so, I don't, you know. And then another's like, no, 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 I need you to, did he do it? And she's like, as God is my witness, I'm not trying to get anybody innocent in trouble. I believe he is the one who did it. So at that point, another juror lunges at Ed Johnson's like, I would kill you right now if I could. Now, in most trials, that would be called a mistrial. <laughs> like, that's the end of it. We, not, we need to try, we're trying this again because obviously the juror is not impartial and the case is still going on. This ain't gonna stand. But again, this is 1906 Tennessee. It's a black man accused of raping a white woman. You know how this is gonna go. It goes to the jury. Initially they're split, which is surprising, but then the next day they come around and it's unanimous. He's convicted of this rape and sentenced to die in early March. Um, his attorneys are so frightened of the mob and any potential danger that they are too afraid to file an appeal. And they said this in the newspapers. They're like, look, we felt like it was basically pointless. If we file an appeal, the mob will be mad. They'll go and lynch him. So we might as well just let the state kill him. <laughs> and all, sadly, they were right. Like ultimately they were right. Ed Johnson's father is definitely not having this. He immediately leaves and go gets a black attorney, Noah Pardon and he asked for help. So Noah Parton actually does an amazing job as an attorney. I mean, long story short, he gets to the United States Supreme Court. He like literally is there in the office waiting for a justice saying, hey, this is our last appeal. They do what's called a writ of habeas corpus to the United States Supreme Court. And they're like, you have to help me. He sits in the um, office all day. I think it's the lobby of the Supreme Court. Maybe I'm simplifying this, but he's in the Supreme Court waiting room. Um, all day hoping to get a justice and amazingly and remarkably and fortuitously um, and all of that good stuff but he the person the justice that comes out to see him is Justice Harlan now Justice Harlan was the only dissenting voice in Plessy versus Ferguson if you remember Plessy from last week that's the case that implemented separate but equal or Jim Crow and he was the only attorney I mean not the only attorney but the only justice that said this is not justice should be colorblind what are we doing here so for for a pardon to encounter that justice was very very fortuitous and Harlan was listening and it's like you know what you're right we'll hear the case and so then that officially came out 
um, he because he once the justices will hear it initially he has to then confer with the other justices and then they collectively agree that they are going to hear the case so that's what happened and then on March 19th the court collectively agreed they would hear the case because they had some constitutional issues like one there were no black people allowed on the jury um, the mob scaring the attorneys to filing an appeal so just a bunch of different issues so at this point ed johnson had an execution date of march 20th it had been pushed back a few days um but march 20th was his execution date and when the supreme court said that they would hear the case that was supposed to stay the execution he officially became a federal prisoner um and the word got back to the chattanooga tennessee so the sheriff received it by telegram it was in the newspapers um, pardon was just coming up in Tennessee when his someone from his office waved just saying yes the court's going to hear the case and he was so excited about it um, but unfortunately as we will see that was not to be that night the white mob they were not having it they wanted justice and they didn't want any delay in the idea that the federal government would come in and tell them what to do and to try to step in and delay the process they just were not having it so Whereas normally they may have six or seven deputies on hand, um, that night the sheriff said, you know what, there's only gonna be one deputy. And whereas before, when the sheriff was, sheriff ship was there to protect Johnson, he either had him removed to another place or he had a militia there and had a, you know more people there to secure the area. He had one deputy on staff that night and the mob came and they also, removed the because it was a four-story building but two stories were underneath the ground so the top story is where johnson was they removed all the inmates on the top story except one woman named mrs baker who was a white woman the mob came in um and sheriff johnson was alerted and he said he ran there most of the way and there was one deputy like i said on staff that night gibson Gibson was upstairs by the time the mob broke through the downstairs and got upstairs He gave them the key. There was like no resistance. The sheriff was there He said they locked him in in the bathroom, but then they let him out But he admits that he never tried to fight them because he felt like it was futile Even though he had a gun and nobody else had a gun. He didn't try to use it because you know, he just felt so powerless What's so crazy to me is that this mob spent an hour with sledgehammers and axes trying to destroy not trying but destroying the jail so that they could get to johnson they got johnson and um they took him out and sadly they went to the bridge up the street and lynched him they threw him off the bridge the first time it didn't there were some issues and then they threw him off again and then he appeared dead but then he was moving a little and then they shot him horrific horrific when the supreme court hears about this lynching they're pissed <laughs> this is brook language they are pissed they are pissed because they see it as a, a a defiance of their order to stay the execution because he was supposed to be executed the next day they get so upset it's a, a national outrage the supreme court's upset theodore roosevelt's upset about this defiance the attorney general is upset they filed charges on the sheriff and like 26 other people for this lynching of this black man the lynching but only to the degree that it was um, criminal contempt of court, that they blatantly disregarded the court's order. So even though, again, I mean, it's great that they're trying to prosecute for the lynching, but really they're upset because it was, you know, a front to their power. Um, a trial is held over the next two years, and then eventually the court says, you know what? 
we find that you are in contempt. Now, like 18 people's cases were dismissed, but Sheriff Shipp, he was found guilty. Gibson, who was on staff, was found guilty as well. And some other people who worked there, they were found guilty. And they just had like, and you know, I'll leave uh, some great articles that you can look at in the, in the um, below that talks about this more, but you just had um, copious evidence of the, the, um, the sheriff making statements like, this is the court's fault that this man got lynched. They should let us do whatever, you know, states rights, which is code for let us deal with our Negroes how we want to deal with our Negroes. Um, you had that woman who was upstairs with Mr. Johnson, Mrs. Baker. She said Gibson told her before that the mob was coming um, and that she wouldn't get hurt. And you had the sheriff who knew, who knew because this had happened previously, that the mob had come to their jail before when they thought that this thing justice would be delayed. So it wasn't something that caught him off guard. He said, well, I thought they were coming the next night because that's when he was supposed to be executed. The court did not find that to be credible. And he was convicted, but he spent a grand total of 90 days in jail, 90. And then when he came home, he was greeted with the hero's welcome as the crowd played Dixie. It's just like, <laughs> it's crazy. It's absolutely crazy to me. So why is this case important? Well, it's important for a few reasons. One, it's an extraordinary case in that it's the only time the United States Supreme Court uh, had a criminal trial. So that's extraordinary. And the fact that they had it about a lynching makes it even more extraordinary. But I think we have to remember here that they did it not primarily because of the lynching, but because they felt like the defiance, how dare this local police station or this local city defy the order of the United States Supreme Court. So this was very much an affront to the power. Um, that is the subtext of what's going on. I also think this case is remarkable because it speaks to the long history that black people have in not trusting the police. Um, the roots are deep. And as you can see, it was the police that allowed this to happen. They were the mob. They were a part of the mob. And they conspired at the very least. And so you have this, this distrust because you know that to be in police custody is to risk your life. Even still, the fact that almost 114 years later, you still have this kind of fear and distrust. And that's why in Minneapolis right now, um, the police station is burning because there's this anger, it's just this trust, this long history, there's these deep roots that are there. And so I think again, it just speaks to why the history of civil rights is important, how there's still work to be done. Um, but you know, the work is going to be hard because the roots are, are deep. And however committed we are to, to justice, it will depend on how much do we want to get into the soil of the problem. How dirty are you willing to get? And I don't mean like doing nasty things, but how much are you willing to get into your your own implicit biases, your own um, complicity in this? How deep are you willing to go to address the problem? And if you only want to do surface level stuff and trying to correct racism, you're, we're never going to do it because it's too ingrained into our society, it's too deeply rooted um, to be surface level. And I think that's evidenced by what's going on in Minneapolis right now. That doesn't happen because one person was killed. That happens because there is this long history, a long memory 
a perpetual problem that has to be addressed and we have to do it now or more places will burn I'm not saying I want them to burn I'm not saying that but anger and outrage will continue on it's like my grandmother says if you don't hear me you'll feel me and that's that's just the cry of humanity and so we must dig deep and seek avenues of justice if not we will continue to have this problem if you like this video, please be sure to hit the like button below. I would really appreciate it. Please share this wherever you would like. If you haven't already, please be sure to subscribe to my YouTube page. Facebook page is Paluki's World Productions. And um, my YouTube is Broke Girly. And then my Instagram, which is Paluki's, Paluki's World. I should know these things. It's Paluki's World. You can also subscribe to my blog so that you never miss a post or a video, I would really appreciate that. So until next time, y'all be safe. Um, take care, God bless. To watch the video series that inspired this podcast, head over to my blog, palookiesworld.com and make sure you subscribe. For more information on the series, like how do you spell Paluki? Please check out the show notes. Finally, Please be sure to subscribe to this podcast so that you never miss an episode.